If uh, you're visiting today, and we always have many visitors, uh, we are looking at the book of Romans. And let me, uh, again, briefly say why we're looking at Romans as a segue into what we're going to talk about. The Bible is a history book. It is about reality. And you're part of it whether you were to believe it or not believe it. And what the Bible teaches us uh, in general is that God is the creator and he reveals himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's what the Bible teaches. And it teaches us that we're created in his image, but the Bible also teaches us that uh, we sinned against God. And because we sinned against God, uh, man uh, uh, explains why we don't get along as husbands and wives. He explains why we are the way we are in many, many ways. And uh, it explains uh, this word called sin and our brokenness from God and our brokenness from one another. And so God in his grace uh, understands that we cannot establish a righteousness of our own, but you need one. Everyone in this room today, trust me, you need a righteousness from God because you have none. Now, who's going to get this righteousness of God? Those who are, uh, as John said earlier, those who are sinners who, who need Christ. Well, God sends his son. And, uh, and so uh, in sending his son to, to die and be raised on our behalf, uh, God has made all things new. Now, the book of Romans, uh, the book of Romans is kind of in specific detail what this whole story is about. That's why we're looking at the book of Romans. Romans, it is the apologetic of the Christian faith. One last thing before we read our text. Um, Paul is trying to drive all mankind in the first three chapters to understand this truth that they are fallen and that they need Christ. Uh, We're going to end in Romans uh, chapter 3 next week where Paul says all, both Jews and Gentiles, are all together guilty. They're all under sin that opens up into this beautiful next verse in uh, uh, Romans 3.21 says, but now there's a righteousness from God. So what Paul has done, if you've been here the last couple of weeks, in, in chapter 1, the question ends up being, well, what about those who've never heard? What about them? What about the people who've never heard? And, of course, Paul says, uh, well, they have heard. Uh, they've heard uh, because God has revealed himself and they exchange the truth for a lie and we, we're not, we can't go over Romans 1 again. But then in Romans chapter 2, he begins to deal with those who are moralizers who go, you know, you're right, man, I'm not giving my body over to all these things. He says, you too are guilty. If you're a moral person, you think you're good, you think you're fine. He says, you too are guilty. For how you judge others shall you also be judged. Then Paul goes further and he says, now you Jews who think because you're God's people or because you go to church or because you believe evangelical truth, but specifically for the Jews, because you've been circumcised, that you're fine. And, and Paul says you would be fine if you received the sign of circumcision, received the sign of baptism, if you were obedient. And he says the true Jew is one who's circumcised of heart. Because it is an issue of the heart. It's, it's not an issue of, of uh, what you believe but what, or what you do, but why you do what you do. It is an issue of the heart. Now, here's the question of the Jews, and here's where we come to in our text. The Jews are going to say, well, then, what good is it to be a Jew? What is the whole point? What is the point of the Old Testament? And Paul's going to answer that question. For us, it might be, well, why go to church? 
If I get up every Sunday morning and come, and we're going to see the answer to that question right here in the first verse, so if you would, I want you to read with me God's Word. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much. In every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you're judged. But if our righteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? Well, I speak in human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us, with saying, their condemnation is just. This is God's word. Let's pray one more time. Father, we pray that you would bless the preaching of your word, that you would uh, take a feeble preacher uh, to speak to those who are feeble of hearing and understanding. We need your spirit. And we ask it in your name. Amen. Uh, Mark Twain uh, once said, uh, and maybe you've heard this quote, that, that youth is wasted, that, that youth is wasted, or, or life is wasted on the youth. Right? We've often said ourselves that, uh, you know, if, I, if I'd known this back then, if I know then what I know now, I'd have done things differently. You ever said that? If, if I only knew these things, I would have done things differently. I remember uh, when my father... Uh, told me one time that in the early 60s, a friend of his who was a business uh, partner uh, talked to him about an opportunity. If he would go in and, and buy some, some uh, oceanfront property in South Carolina, that one day we would be loaded. Well, my dad didn't take his advice. This was a missed opportunity. And so he ended up being very wealthy at about 40-something years old. And my dad did fine for himself, but... Uh, uh, he didn't quite make the money this gentleman did. Missed opportunity. But let me tell you where it's more difficult sometimes is when you have been around opportunities. You've grown up and you've had privilege, but you didn't take advantage of the, pri the privilege that you were given. Uh, I love music. And uh, I liked uh, playing the piano but one of my great regrets is that I grew up in a family that I had no idea how musical my family was. Found out later that my mother was uh, offered a scholarship at one of the finest uh, uh, musical schools in, in the world. And uh, she's the greatest soprano that I've ever heard, the greatest. And I've heard them at Powell Hall in St. Louis. I've heard them here sing the Messiah. She was one of the greatest pianists I've ever heard. And then I have a brother who's in the music business in Nashville, Tennessee. And somehow I thought that just kind of... Uh, taken a few piano lessons and uh, uh, that I would uh, be able to, to uh, take advantage of, of all that was around me. But you know what? The difference between me and them is uh, that uh, they, they exercised the gifts that they had and I didn't. And so the end result is that uh, 
I had a missed opportunity, and now I listen to music, and people are able to play. I listen to, you ever listen to them play up front, and you go, man, I wish I could play the banjo like that. I wish I could, but I, it was a missed opportunity. Well, I think this is exactly what our text is saying about us who are in the family of God, where the music of the gospel is being played. And we kind of know the, the lyrics, but we've never sung the music. And, uh, and so, uh, for that reason, because we haven't exercised our faith and haven't taken advantage of all the privileges uh, that we have, it's missed opportunities. But you see, this is exactly what Paul is dealing with in this text. He's asking the question, well, what advantage is there being a Jew? What is the point of the whole Old Testament that if it is for nothing. And Paul is wanting to correct that because he says much in every way. Now let me tell you what I want to look at in our time that we have together before we come to the Lord's table. And that is this. I I really do believe that many of us have a very low view of the visible church. Because you see, to be part of the Old Testament people of God, God chose them out of all the nations and He gave them sacraments. He gave them circumcision. And He also gave them the Passover meal that they would partake of. They were were marked to be gods. But what Paul is saying is just because you're marked to be gods, just because you have the Word of God, just because you're a part of God's covenant people, in no way means that your life has changed. But is there benefit to that? Oh, absolutely. Is there benefit to being part of God's covenant people? Oh, absolutely. And that's what I want us to look at today. Now, we live in a day and age, especially with younger people, who do not like the institution of the church. Have you ever heard, well, that's religion. I'm not into religion. I'm into Jesus. And I have the Holy Spirit. And uh, so I don't need officers, I don't, I don't need baptisms, I don't need all these things. And of course, Paul is very clearly saying, no, there is an advantage. They had an advantage, even though they wanted to argue against that. And there are four objections that I want to look at. And as we look briefly at these four objections, what I would like for you to do is ask yourself honestly this morning, am I part of the visible church? And I hear evangelical truths, I hear evangelical preaching, just like our confession of sin said. But, uh, but it doesn't lead to my life loving my wife or giving my money or being holy or loving the poor or caring for the needs of the other or picking up the phone to those who are lonely this afternoon and say, come on over to my house. The way Paul answers these objections is through what he calls a diatribe, what's called a diatribe, okay? And let me explain that because one of the beauties of the book of Romans is he does it all the way through the book of Romans. Some people would call it like a law law brief. A good lawyer states the case and then answers the case. The way a diatribe worked was uh, that uh, there would be a philosophical teacher and he would raise the questions and he would answer the questions. Now, Paul is asking some important questions here, and any good preacher, just like Jesus, is going to ask questions anticipating your questions. 
And, uh, and, you know, it's interesting how a lot of these questions here are cynical questions. And one of the worst places to be is God's covenant people and asking cynical questions. But I think the reason Paul asked these questions here is that he was already asking these questions before he met Jesus Christ. He started thinking through, well, if what they're saying is true, then this. And so the Apostle Paul is letting you know that he's really thinking about it. And by the way, let me tell you this if you're a believer. And, and you have friends here, here who are not believers. The best way philosophers say to answer a question is to challenge your own noetic structure. To, change your own, to challenge your own belief system. Like if you've never asked the question, really, why am I a Christian? What is Christianity? Is Christ really raised from the dead? If you've never really wrestled with that, never doubted those truths, then you know what? You're just kind of going, and it's a muffled sound. But who are the profound Christians? Those who ask the questions. Those who think of the objections, answer the objections. Augustine put it this way. He said, said, doubt leads to certainty, and certainty leads to doubt. If there's never the questions that are asked, then there's never the ultimate real faith that's grasping and holding of Jesus Christ. But that's what he's doing. So what I want to do is go through the objections. Here's objection number one we see in verse one. What advantage has the Jew? Or you put in the place being a church person. What value of circumcision? What value of being baptized? Baptized little children. You know, that's a nice little ceremony. What value in it? And what is his answer? Much in every way, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Here's the objection. Paul's teaching undermines God's covenant. Wait a minute, these are God's covenant people. Well, if he's not going to be faithful to his covenant, then what about his covenant people? Does this not undermine uh, God? Is there any real benefit in being God's people? And the answer is yes. Much. In every way. In fact, Paul is kind of going to eventually, in Romans 9, ask the question again. What advantage is it being a Jew? And he says in Romans 9, well, yours is the adoption of sons. Yours is the divine glory, the covenants, the temple worship, the ancestry of Jesus Christ. Do you think that the people, the Jews, had more advantage than those who were not Jews when God showed up on Mount Sinai? Do you think that you have more advantage when you're hearing the sacraments and what the 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 fencing of the table, the baptisms? But what Paul does here is he just uses one of these, and that is yours are the oracles of God. God has spoken to Israel first, through the prophets. And ultimately to the church of God, the new Israel of God, through the prophets and through the apostles. Is there advantage to that? Much in every way. If you're not a Christian here today, and you're trying to think about life and how to make sense of life, you can't. Or if you're a nominal Christian, and you're going, yeah, okay, Jesus died, but you know what? Uh, My wife's uh, uh, mother died tragically last week. What about that? How would you answer that? So the world lives in darkness. You know, listen, when when we do the sacraments, when we do, like when I do weddings, that wedding's not a sacrament, by the way, I don't believe. But when we do weddings, I have a wedding, and I'm always ticking people off during the wedding. And it's a good thing. You know why? Because the wedding is a picture of what? 
Christ and his bride. They said, oh, by the way, all you people that are here thinking about getting married, you gotten married, this, this is where it came from. It wasn't some, something that evolved. It is from God. And so then I began to talk about Christ's love for his people. And I started talking about what it means to be a Christian man to love his wife, to lay his wife down. And I talk about what it means to be a wife to submit to her husband in the same way that Jesus Christ, who's equal with the Father, submits so that we might have eternal life. And oh man, you can start seeing the steam out there. But I said, but by the way, this is a Christian wedding. But this is the, the greatness of a true Christian marriage. And why is there so many bad marriages in the visible church? You know why? Because we, we, it's, we hear the words, but we don't submit by faith to what it says. But is there benefit? Yes. When you do a Christian funeral, and I do funerals. I had a guy call me not long ago and said, would you do my father's funeral? He came here years and years ago. And I said, sure. And he said, oh, yeah, but one thing, he's, he's Jewish. And I said, you want me to do your father's funeral? And he's Jewish. And he said, yeah. And I said, well, of course I will. Can I do it? I, I mean, but I have to do a Christian funeral. But it's there. I'm, I'm there with uh, Jews and non-Jews and Christians and non-Christians. But it's wonderful because I'm able to say, listen, the Christian has great hope because of the resurrection of the dead. How do we know that? Because the Bible tells us. And because Christ is risen. And that should impact our lives as Christians. So is there advantage? Oh, much in every way. The question ends up being, are you taking advantage of the means of grace that God has given? Are you responding to it? Or is it just a bunch of information or knowledge to you? Uh, James Boyce, in speaking uh, of this, uh, he speaks of the importance uh, of the Word of God. But one of the things that he says uh, in in our text uh, about the Word of God, uh, he says this. He says, you know, when you go to church... Uh, even if you never become a Christian, it's to your advantage. Even if you're a nominal Christian, you've been baptized with water, but you've never been, you've never been baptized with the Holy Spirit. You know what? But you still stay with your wife. You don't have abortions. Because, you know, I can't do that. Or, 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 or uh, you're staying away from pornography because you go, you know what? I probably shouldn't be doing pornography. So there's benefit that's there because you live a moral life, but it doesn't change you. He said it's great to hear the word of God is because First Peter tells us that the word of God is the divine seed planted in you by the Holy Spirit. There is no conversion. There is no salvation without hearing the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what advantage is there? If you do nothing with it, well, there's not much advantage. But you know what? You need to get yourself in the way of God's grace. One last thing about this, and this is my major point, but Some of you are very nonchalant about church. It comes to my attention that some of you stay home. Because, you know, you need to, you need to, it's been a busy week. Need some time with your family. Oh, let me tell you what message you're sending your children. The gospel's not that important. But not only that, you know what? You're not standing on the railroad track upon which God's grace comes to roll you over. And not only that, your children aren't here to hear the gospel. Think about it another way. Remember Zacchaeus? Jesus comes into the village. Jesus is on his way, but here Zacchaeus is, a sinner. People hated his guts. And he goes up and he climbs up in a tree 
And Jesus looks at him and says, Zacchaeus, come down, for today salvation has come to you. What if Zacchaeus stayed home? Is it possible that, is it possible that for some of you, grace has already passed by? Is that possible? And you presume upon grace when you should have been here the day that God the Holy Spirit would save you? But you see, we're often as God's people say, well, you know, God should save me. Why would God not save me? Because he's promised to save me, which brings me to the second objection, which is in verse 2. In verse 2, he says this, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? Well, is God able to save his people? Isn't God supposed to save Israel? Wasn't that the promise that he made, that he would save Israel? Yes, that is the promise that he made. But just because some don't believe it, God's covenant people, and by the way, do you look around and see a lot of cynical Christians? Powerless Christians? Christians who seem to be promising to the unbeliever, oh man, they have truth, and then they go and they think maybe... Maybe out of their well is coming bubbles of water, living water that Jesus says in John chapter 4 would be to those who are born again of the Holy Spirit. And they come and they look. And you know what? It's a broken cistern. It's an empty well. It is a mirage. Why? Because they're God's covenant people. But they themselves have missed being united to Christ. Does that mean that God is faithless because some who are here today that say, yeah, you know, I believe it, but not really. Let me ask you this, if you're a believer. Think about it this way. You know, living water, the, you know, water. There's what people are dry, they're thirsty and they go get water. Would the gospel of Jesus Christ, would Christianity continue to the next generation if it were left up to you? Have you led anybody to Christ? And you say, well, I'm not, you know, I'm, I, you look, I go to church and... Well, and again, I'm not asking you to go out and beat on doors, but I tell you what, how can you not always want people to know who Jesus Christ is? Is it because you're basically saying, well, you know what, God, you're obligated to save. But let me tell you something. Paul's very generous here because he said, if some do not believe. Well, I think if you read the Old Testament, you go, because most do not believe. Right? Elijah, Lord, I'm the only one. He says, no, that, that hasn't uh, bowed my knee to bell. He says, no, 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 you're not the only one. There's 7,000. 7,000. Now, I don't know how many, I don't know exactly what he means by that, but 7,000 who are my covenant people who are in the invisible church, okay? They love God because God has revealed himself to them and they're responding by grace. But is there advantage? Well, again, I ask you, did the Hittites have the gospel? Did the Perizzites have the gospel? Did the Japanese have the gospel at that time? No, but they can have it now. Third objection. Paul's teaching impugns the justice of God. God is not just. And here's how the twisted argument goes, and maybe the reason he starts talking about God's justice is because he just got through saying, let God be true and every man a liar. Uh, matter of fact, this is what David says in Psalm 51. You know what Psalm 51 is about? David, who, who, who was the hardness heart, and 
he'd had an affair with, a, uh, with Bathsheba and he had Uriah the Hittite killed. And then six months later, he's hardened his heart. He's jaded himself against God and against God's people. Jaded. And God in his mercy and his grace, he sends Nathan to David. And David does not care one twit about, his, uh, about Uriah's death or the fact that he took his wife and he's an adulterer. Because God is gracious, he sends Nathan and he comes under conviction and he says, let God be true and every man a liar. Who are we to judge God? So the objection is this. Verse 5, if our unrighteousness proves the righteousness of God, then can he still find fault? So is God unjust to bring his wrath upon us? Will he truly bring judgment on the Jews? You see his reasoning? If God is glorified because of my unrighteousness, then can God still find fault? Because, hey, well, let's go ahead and sin that grace might abound if that's the way it works. Let's just sin. God's going to be gracious. This objection is one of a philosophical Jew and perhaps a cynical Jew, which shows that, you know, that modern man's not the only one the cynical cynicism was going on back at that time. Certainly God's wrath is on the immoral Gentiles, as Jesus would say. But will he really bring wrath upon his own people? And would it not be unfair of him to punish them for something which was supposed to have been to their advantage? Let me tell you what, human beings are always asking questions. And sometimes you ask the question the wrong way. You know why? Because you're like, to a certain extent, Job going, hey, wait a minute, what is this all about? And it's not until God graciously reveals himself to Job and starts asking Job the questions that he's really changed. But if God doesn't do that, then who are we to ask God? I mean, seriously, if you, if you can't get along with your own spouse... And if, you're, if your spouse thinks you have problems or your children think you have problems or your parents think you have problems as a child, how in the world are you going to be able to stand before God and say, hey, I, need, I have some questions for you. How does Paul respond to this? He doesn't. He would say that is a sign that you have not been circumcised of heart and your condemnation is just. You've been asking those type questions to God? God, it brings you here this morning and is because he's merciful to you to say, no, 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 no. You, you can't ask that way. There's benefit in hearing the gospel of Christ this here. And finally, the last objection in, uh, is the fourth objection. Uh, Paul's teaching falsely promotes God's glory, verse 7, but if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory... Why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that just that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, for their condemnation is just. You know, I think, again, I don't mind. I think it's good to ask questions. And uh, what's interesting to me is how questions get a little bit more perverse as you get older. I remember when my daughter was four years old, Elizabeth. She, she asked me one time. She's four years old. And this shows you that children have souls that can never die. She, says, she said, Dad, um, she said, where'd God come from? 
And I said, he's always been. And she said, he's always been. She said, well, when was he born? Was he born? I said, no, he's never born. He's always been. And here's a little four-year-old girl. She's sitting there looking at me. She says, wow, that's really weird. <laughs> Four years old. Asking, that's a good question. And then uh, her, uh, her first cousin, uh, uh, my, my niece, uh, Kristen, when she was about five years old, she asked the question, can God sit in his own lap? <laughs> okay, well, let's see here. Um, ask your mother th that question. You know. <laughs> But then the questions get a little bit more jaded as our hearts begin to harden and we begin to sin against God. And we start asking silly questions like, can God create a rock bigger than he can pick up? Or I could go on and on and on. And Martin Luther said that hell was created for people who ask such questions because it gets them off the real issue. And that is that they need a savior. You're asking the wrong questions. The, wrong, the right question is, God... Why would you have mercy upon me, a sinner? And let me tell you something. If you're asking that question, you will get an answer. And where are you going to get that answer? You're going to get that answer among God's visible church, among his people. And I say somebody shares the gospel, you say, well, I was converted through somebody sharing their faith with me. That's fine, but I guarantee you that they were hooked up to the church. I guarantee you that they heard the preaching of the word. But God's ordinary means is through the preaching of the word. Let me, uh, let me conclude by giving you one example, and then we'll take the Lord's table. I'm going to conclude on this. About the importance of the visible church and, and where we all come together and go, yeah, we have lots of questions. I've wept with mothers who've lost their children. We've all wept together, those who've, who've died. It's been hard for me to answer the questions that some of you might have, like, how could so-and-so happen? What am I supposed to say? Hey, God's sovereign. But we're the visible church. We come together and we go, hey, listen, I don't understand everything, but we know this, that God is good and he is sovereign. I conclude by telling you, and I asked Ben if I could use this illustration. Uh, Ben's my oldest son. And uh, he, didn't really, he didn't really come to fully understand the gospel, but I don't know, three or four years ago. He's 30 years old now, getting married soon, 31. About time he's getting married. <laughs> Karen. But, uh, but he, was always, uh, he was always precocious, always uh, yeah, like, well, he was not compliant. Let's put it that way. And, uh, and I'd come home and I'd say, uh, uh, son, what do I need to whip you for today? And, uh, no, not really, I didn't do that, okay. <laughs> I digress. It was almost that way, though. But so, so, so he got to be about 15 years old. And he started talking about all the hypocrites in the church. Uh, and I said, and? and? He's like, well, you know, I just, I, I just you know, I can't, you know, I don't, I, I just, I don't want to be a hypocrite. I'm like, well, good luck. But, uh, but Okay, where was I? Okay, I, look, I don't want, look, I don't want to be a hypocrite, Dad. And I said, okay, that, that, that's great. Is that my mic doing that? Okay, okay, I'll be real still here. And uh, I said, uh, okay, well, I tell you what. So what you're telling me is you don't want to be a Christian. You don't want to be like those Christians that say one thing, do another, like your dad does, 
or like other Christians do. I said, I tell you what I want you to do. You, you were baptized as a child. Now, for you people that don't understand infant baptism, I'm going to explain it to you. I said, you were engaged to be the Lord. You know, when I, when I started dating my wife, I dated her a long time. And, uh, and then I gave her an engagement ring. So that one day that we might be one together, right? That's what the wedding ceremony is about, folks. But you're not supposed to be having intercourse before then. You're not supposed to be having union before then. Do y'all know that? But anyhow, so you get engaged. So that one day you might be one and know the joy of not only being one, what it means to be one physically, but to be one spiritually, to be one, right? The reason we don't understand all these things is because we just violate it. But, so I said, now, you've been, in, you've been received baptism. You're engaged to be the Lord's. So what you're telling me is you want to give the engagement ring back. But let me tell you, if your mother gave me the engagement ring back, I'm not giving her one again. So if you want to come to the session, we're meeting next Tuesday night, and you would like to deny your baptism and give that engagement ring back, then I'll tell you what, you go ahead and do that, but you'll be like Esau, and you'll never come back to the faith, trust me. I said, so, I'll pick up the phone, I'll call him, and we'll, we'll meet with you, we'll put you on the agenda. And he stopped and said, uh, don't want to do that. <laughs> I said, why not? And he said, well, uh... <laughs> You know, that's, a, that's kind of final, isn't it? And I said, yeah, it's final. But you see, you're engaged to be the Lord's. And let me tell you, covenant children, if you've had water on your head, but you're not communing with God, you don't know God. But is there benefit to being here? Oh, yes, there is. Is there a responsibility for you children, for you that say, I, I'll get around to it later? Oh, yes, there is. And some of you, you may be past that opportunity, but you never think about it because you presume upon the grace of God not obligated to marry you and uh, so he said no I'm not going to deny my baptism I said well then who's the hypocrite here you're dating God but you're not married to him now guys how many of y'all are dating God but you don't know the full unis, fullness of what it means to be one with the lover of your soul seriously then you will perish in your sin because there is covenant responsibility to respond to the Holy Spirit and be saved. Much benefit being part of the visible church in every way, but greater benefit to be born again and to be one with Jesus Christ. Is that fruit showing in your life that there's rivers of living water coming from your soul? Then repent. Repent of your hardness of heart and come to Jesus Christ and he is there to save your soul. Let's pray together. Father, God Almighty, work your word into our hearts. Convert people this morning. Bring them to King Jesus so that they might not receive just a sign but deny the one who gives the sign and be one with him. Lord Jesus, work this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.